You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. teacher, teach us from your word. That you would help me to faithfully communicate what you have for us through the word revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Uh, Why don't you just turn to your neighbor this morning and say, good morning. I'm less, uh, I'm less concerned if, if anyone would respond and say good morning back to me. I'd rather have you say good morning to each other. We're uh, working through our first study of, or our study of First and Second Thessalonians. So uh, we're in First Thessalonians chapter 5 today. If you have a Bible, you can turn there um, if you need one. Uh, I think some so- folks will come around and can put a Bible in your hands. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5. Originally, you were going to hear from Pastor Devin this morning, but we switched around our schedules a bit, and so you'll have to settle for me again, and for that, you have my condolences. Um, Chapter 5, starting in verse 1 through verse 11, is where we'll be reading. And the Apostle Paul here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 seems to be responding to a question that has come to him through Timothy. He sent Timothy to the Thessalonians to give a report, and Timothy brings back the report, and along with that report seems to come a question. Paul seems to be responding to a question, and the Thessalonians appear to be curious about when this day of the Lord is supposed to come. I mean, after all, if they want to be ready, knowing how much time they have will allow them to make a good plan, right? How can they be ready for that day if they don't know when that day will be? So they ask, essentially ask Paul, when is all this going to happen? And as we'll read in just a moment, Paul really doesn't answer their question, at least not in the way that maybe they were hoping. Instead, Paul seems to address a question kind of underneath the question, because I'm sure that they would love to know the when, but what they really need to be sure of is that will they be ready when that time comes? See, Paul doesn't answer the when question with a lot of detail. He answers the deeper question, are they ready for when that day does come? So when that question in mind. Are they ready for when the day actually comes? With that question in mind, let's read our text this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober 
having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, excuse me, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is God's word for us this morning. Paul asks to the Thessalonians, are you ready for that day, for the day of the Lord? And then in the following verses kind of builds a case of assurance that yes, they can indeed be ready for the sudden day of the Lord by living in the light of Christ Jesus. So that's the question we're asking. Are we ready? And the, the, the answer to that is yes, we can be ready because we can be ready, excuse me, we can be ready for the sudden day of the Lord by living in the light of Christ Jesus. So we're going to break our text into a couple of parts. Verses 1 through 3, Paul's partial answer to the when. His answer, I'll give you, here it is. It'll be sudden. We'll unpack that. That's his answer. Ready for the sudden return. Verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 8, Paul then encourages, here's what it means to live ready by living in the light. And then the end of the little section here, 9 through 11, is Paul's encouragement to the church. So let's get after it. Paul's first answer or non-answer to the question, when will the day of the Lord come? And I already told you, I gave it away. Paul's answer is suddenly. It'll come suddenly. So what does it mean to be ready for the sudden day of the Lord? Look at verse 1. Paul says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, translated and used in other places in the New Testament, this is brothers and sisters, which tells us Paul is speaking to the whole church here who's, who's kind of waiting and asking Paul this question. They're all sitting around, in a sense, asking Paul together, hey, hey, when's this going to be? And so Paul's addressing all of them, the whole group of believers. Now concerning this implied question about the times and the seasons, the timing and the conditions around Jesus' return. Paul continues, because there's a comma there in our English translation, you have no need to have anything written to you. Concerning the question you're asking about when it will be and what it will look like, you have no need for anyone to write anything to you. Paul's essentially saying, you don't really need me to write anything else. Why? Verse 2. Because for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul's saying, you already know that the Lord will return at any moment. You already know that. I don't need to write anything extra to you because I've already told you. Then look at verse 3. Paul likens this coming of the Lord, not just to like a thief in the night. Verse 3, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains will come upon a pregnant woman, but they will not escape. Paul likens the suddenness of the return, not just to a burglar, at night, but to the, the birth pains of a, of, a, of a pregnant woman who's, who's immediately overcome. Now, full confession, I have never been pregnant. However, from what I can tell and in consultation with my wife, who has, if you're pregnant, there's a, a low level of discomfort kind of the whole time, particularly towards the end. But the, but the contractions, the labor pains, when, when they start can seem to come out of nowhere. They can kind of hit 
suddenly and, and hard. Now, you don't get to plan them. You don't get to avoid them. You can't put them off. When it's time, it's time. Mom's in the room. Can I get an amen on that? Am I somewhat accurate? Right? Becky? Right? When it's time, it's time. Becky is nearly time. Sorry, I just embarrassed you in front of all our friends. Right? When it's time, it's time. And Paul was saying, this is the, what the return of Jesus is kind of like. Sudden and unavoidable. When it's time, it's time. It's go time. And this isn't the only place where we see the connection of Jesus' return kind of likened to both burglary and birth. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 24. You don't have to, but we'll be in Matthew 24 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 a lot. So you might want to like put a marker in both places. I'm going to be going back and forth a fair amount today. In Matthew 24, Jesus is teaching about the end of the age. He's talking about his return. And in Matthew 24, verses 3 through 8, he, he's talking, Jesus is saying, all this stuff is going to happen, these hardships, these trials. And then verse 8, he goes, and all these are but the beginning of... Jesus says, birth pains. The idea here that Jesus is getting at and that Paul is bringing to the Thessalonians is that what Jesus has inaugurated at his first coming will come to completion at his second. Verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom, which came through Christ, this is Matthew 24, the gospel of the kingdom, which came through Christ, will spread out to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. The birth pains start now and when it's time... It's time. Continuing on in Matthew 24, verse 26, Jesus continues, and he goes, After this season of trial and tribulation, the sky will grow dark and shake, and Jesus will appear in the clouds. Verse 30, with power and great glory. I love that. Verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And like this, doesn't this sound a little bit like we read two weeks ago in 1 Thessalonians 4? The call of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet to what? To gather his elect from the four winds. He will gather up all his people. And if I can borrow again from Thessalonians chapter 4, to meet the Lord in the air. Right? There's this glorious picture of it's time. It will be sudden. Jesus continues in Matthew so you don't need to know the exact day or hour. In fact, verse 26, Jesus is concerning that day. No one but the Father knows. If, I, if you needed to know, I would have told you, Jesus is saying. And Paul kind of reiterates the same thing. Jesus then continues in Matthew 24, says, That day will be like it was in the days of Noah, that people were eating and drinking and getting married, all just living normal life, right up until the day that Noah and his family went into the ark, right up until the day until it started to rain. Life will be happening right up until it starts to rain. Verse 40 of Matthew 24, Jesus then gives two pictures of what that looks like. Just life is happening. Two men are working in a field. Two women are working side by side, grinding grain at the mill. And in an instant, with a loud trumpet, the world will hear. One will be called up to meet the Lord in the air and the other will not. Again, this is the picture of a sudden and unavoidable reality. And Paul says, you don't need anyone to write to you to tell you this. You already know this. You don't need any more information than you already have. You don't need to know the exact when in order to be ready. You just have to know that he's coming and it's going to be sudden. 
in essence, it's kind of a soft exhortation. An exhortation is a challenge. Paul is gentle here, but he is challenging the Thessalonians to not get caught up and distracted in trying to figure out the exact when, but to be satisfied with what we do know, that it will be soon and sudden, and that that's enough. Let me give you an illustration. In talking about this text, you can imagine we've had lots of eschatology conversations as a church and as staff. And uh, I'm stealing one from Mitch. If you, follow, if you know the reference, there you go. I'm stealing this illustration from Mitch, who, who brought it up, and it was a really good illustration. Uh, Devin and I were talking about it, and we're like, we're just going to use it. So I just want Mitch to get the credit here. Mitch says this, suppose a teacher assigns a group project. He sets the parameters of the entire project with one exception. He doesn't give the due date. Breaks the class into groups. There's research and work that's been done from previous classes. Each group is handed a stack of research that they're supposed to carry on, right? Group A and group B with one exception. There isn't a due date. Now suppose in the months that pass through the, through the semester, through the class, group A is, is working diligently to try to do the work that they can do. They've been plugging away, working a little bit at a time, trying to make as much progress as they can, knowing that at some point they're going to have to give a report, even if they don't know when that is. So they do their best work that's right in front of them. Group B, on the other hand, they haven't got as much work done on the project itself. In fact, when they get together, they spend most of their time attempting to figure out when the project might be due. They have spent hours upon hours discussing the calendar, dissecting their professor's social media accounts, trying to determine when might he make us turn this project in. In fact, when he gave us the assignment, he was wearing a blue sweater, and that was a Friday. He tends to wear blue sweaters on Friday. I'm willing to bet the project will be due on a Friday. Right? Now, finally, suppose the professor informs the class one day, say it's a Tuesday, Okay, class, today, I'd like you to present what you have so far on your projects. Pop quiz. <laughs> group one can gather, group A can gather what they've done, can, can cobble together what they have and share with the class, here's the progress we've made so far. Here's what we've learned. Here's what we've discovered. Here's where the data is taking us. But group B, they spent all their time and energy trying to figure out when the project was due, that they have done little work on the project itself. So to close up Mitch's illustration, which I still find compelling and helpful, which do you suppose got the better grade in class that day? Group A or group B? Right? Thank you. So Paul, this is what Paul's essentially kind of getting at. It's less important for you to know the when. It's more important for, you know, for you to know that it's happening and it will happen suddenly. Had he wanted us to know when, he would have told us. Instead, he wants us to be found working, living for Christ when he returns. So that we have a project that he's, been tasked, he's tasked us with that we've been working on and we can present. Here's what you've given us, Lord, that we've tried our best in your power to be faithful in completing rather than here's a chart with the predicted due date on it. So Paul's encouragement in light of this is be ready. We know it's going to be sudden, so be ready, which kind of leads to the second part and the starting in verse 4 and on. That we can make sure we're ready when Jesus suddenly returns by living in the light of Christ. And I think this is actually Paul's main point of this whole passage. 
Yes, Jesus' return will be sudden, but what you need to be encouraged with is this, that we can be ready by living in the light. The main point of this passage is not about the when, but about being ready for when the when happens. Paul contrasts what it looks like to be ready and not be ready. He says that day will come like a thief suddenly, but that you Thessalonians, you're not in darkness. So that day, even though it's sudden, will not surprise you. The sudden return of Jesus will for some be shock and fear and for others be shout of joy. Paul says to those who are in the dark, the day will be a surprise. But for those in the light, children of day, Paul calls them, it will be sudden, but not a surprise. Look at the contrast Paul makes in verses 4 through 8 between those who are ready and not ready. Those not ready, Paul refers to as being of the night or in darkness. He uses words like asleep and drunk. And in contrast with those who are ready, being children of the day or people in the light, those who are awake and sober. I'd like to look at these briefly. Looking at children of the night or in darkness versus children of the day or in the light. Darkness Biblically is a parallel often used for foolishness, for faithlessness, for lostness. John 12, Jesus says, I've come into the world. Why? So that whoever believes may not remain in darkness. Paul says in Colossians 1, that he, God the Father, has delivered us from where? From the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. We used to be in the dark. And now in Christ Jesus, we are not. This is the reference we saw earlier, like a thief coming at night. When does most burglary happen? This is not a trick question. At night, right? Why? Why does it happen at night? Because it's dark, right? People are asleep. You can hide in the dark, right? The thief coming at night is the most opportune. My dad told me once, nothing good happens after midnight. It was probably in reference to me staying out way too late. And although that is not in the Bible, by the way, that there's nothing good that happens after midnight. The the point is this, that once the sun goes down, what? There is more opportunity for trouble, which I probably proved my dad right numerous times. Right? Jesus says as much in Matthew 24, verse 43. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. And would not have let his house be broken into. For those in the dark, the return of Jesus will be a surprise. Just like a thief who surprises us in the night. Jesus says, but not so for you. Notice the contrast. Some will be surprised, but you shouldn't be. Look at what Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 5. But you are not in darkness. You are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for the day to surprise you like a thief. That day will not be a surprise for those who are walking in the light. It will be sudden, but not a surprise. Why? Verse 5. For, this is the because statement that Paul's using. Why won't it surprise you? Because you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And let's step back for just a second from the eschatological, the end times language here, and just look at the spiritual reality of this statement that Paul just made. What is true of all of us if we are in Christ Jesus? It's, it's utterly remarkable. Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this, For God, 
who made light shine out of darkness. God who created light from nothingness. That God has... Who, who made light from nothing has shown in our hearts to bring life from nothing, from death. That God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And here in verses 4 and 5, But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Paul goes all the way back to who we now are in Christ to say, this anchors us, that we are no longer darkness, we are light. Therefore, this shouldn't surprise us. It will be sudden, but not surprising. In the next uh, contrast Paul uses, he uses asleep and drunk, kind of in contrast to awake and sober. Look at verse 6. So then, because we are no longer of the night, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be Sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night. But since you belong to the day, let us be sober. Now, a quick word. The, Paul's not referring to those who have fallen asleep in the Lord here. He's using sleep as sleep. <laughs> when do most people sleep? Again, unless you work the third shift, at night. And again, not a trick question, right? Physical sleep here is parallel to what Paul's talking about, a spiritual sleepiness, or more specifically, an indifference or a laziness. And so it relates to spiritual readiness for Jesus' second coming. He's essentially saying, don't be spiritually sleepy. Like Jesus said in Matthew 24, if the master of the house knew when the thief was going to come, what would he do? If he knows the thief is coming, does he go to bed? No, he sits up with the light off in the living room with the 12 gauge. He's ready. So when he hears the, the, the lock picking or door shaking at the back or someone's messing around in the garage, it's right. He's ready. That's what I think Jesus, short of the 12 gauge, is getting at here. The master of the house, if he's expecting it, is ready. You wouldn't just go to bed that night without being aware and watchful. That's the idea. Let's continue. He says, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, what is Paul saying here? Well, when is the usual time for drinking and revelry? Again, not a trick question. Like, right outside of the mimosa at brunch, the time for a big meal or a celebratory pint or a glass of wine is what? After the work is done, after the war is over, that's when we let our guard down and we kick back a little. That's when we celebrate. Now, as an aside, I don't think there's a biblical prohibition on alcohol here. However, the Bible is very clear when it comes to drunkenness. This is an aside that I think is important because Paul talks about it. We're going to talk about it. Psalm 104 itself says that wine is one of God's good gifts, can be enjoyed to gladden the heart. And at the very same time, we are cautioned very clearly about drunkenness. Paul specifically says it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Don't get drunk on wine. He's including anything in there that could get you drunk. Don't be like, ha-ha, he only said wine. Don't get drunk, Paul says. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. That's capital S, Holy Spirit. Be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit, not lowercase, 
spirits, okay? There's a difference. And so the core idea here is that drunkenness strips someone of their faculties. They're no longer self-controlled. And we know this. Like, we're not, we're not dumb. We know the effects of mind-altering substances. We know the effects of too much alcohol in the human body. Slower response times. Decreased brain function. Confusion. Right? The more alcohol in your system, the more impaired you become. And so Paul's drawing this contrast between the drunkenness and alertness. Being unable and being aware. Just as we are no longer of the night, Paul says, rather we now walk in the light. We too are no longer controlled by our desires. We're no longer driven by our flesh. Rather we live sober. Aware, awake, no longer reveling in self-indulgence. So that's the contrast Paul's giving here between the one who is ready and awake and sober-minded and alert and the one who isn't ready is the one who's sleepy, who's drowning their sorrows and fears in one too many, who's hiding away from what's scary to them by burying themselves in self-indulgence. Paul's saying, we're not like that any longer. We once were, but we're not. We're children of light. Paul says this is no longer you. Now, if you go back in Matthew 24 and continue on in Jesus' teaching, he continues marking out the difference between the faithful servant and the wicked servant, the one who's responsible to be the caretaker of all his master's belongings. Starting in verse 45 of Matthew 24, Jesus gives the picture of a, of a master of a house who has a manager, who is the steward, who manages the house and the employees, the servants, make sure they're well cared for, well paid, that all of the master's uh, work and possessions and business all functions like it should. The master has gone away and has charged the servant to manage the home. The faithful servant manages the employees, serves the household, making sure they have what they need. And Jesus says this, Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. The, the idea that blessed is the one who is doing what his master asked him. So when the master returns, he finds the faithful servant doing what he asked. I want you to save that idea of the master uh, found doing what he asked, or the servant found doing what he asks. Just save that little idea. We'll get back to that in a minute. Verse 48. But if the servant is wicked, says to himself, my master is delayed. He is late. And he begins to beat his fellow servants doesn't recognize his position as one of a fellow servant, but asserts his own authority, eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that wicked servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know. Spot check. And here it gets really real. Parents in the room, again, you're welcome for the lunch conversations that will happen with your kids. Verse 51. The master who finds this wicked servant not doing what the master asked, Verse 51, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hello. The outcome for those who are not ready, Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, is destruction. It's one of judgment. Paul says it. We already read it. Sudden destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. And nearly every Old Testament prophet who's looking forward to the coming day of the Lord emphasizes and focuses on the fact that that is a terrible day. We, we read a little bit of it this morning. Luke read the passage from Joel. 
Now, they had faith that God would preserve for himself a remnant among the people. I hope you heard that, especially in the last section of Joel 2 that we read, that there's this gospel hope woven in there that the, that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And now we know that that comes through Christ Jesus. But the day of the Lord is often and always one of judgment and wrath and dread. And if left to defend ourselves before God, it would indeed and should be terrifying. Let me give you another example. If I were to try to make the case before God that I should get mercy over judgment, I'm standing before God trying to make my case. In the end, I deserve mercy. And, and, and all that I had to show for it was to stack up the good things I've done. And I could even include my good intentions. And I stack all that up. If I'm honest... The pile of wickedness in my heart and my impure motives and my pride and my arrogance, that stack would surely tower over any little piddly stack of my own goodness that I could pile up. Which indeed would be terrifying. Because I have no case. And this is where Paul's encouragement comes. He says, but brothers and sisters, that's not you anymore. You're not in darkness anymore. You no longer are standing in your own goodness, which isn't really good at all. Instead, you are standing in the complete and perfect work of Christ. You are no longer in the darkness. You are in the light. We don't belong to the night. We belong to the day. And so Paul says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, and a helmet for the hope of salvation. Paul uses similar Ephesians uh, language that he uses in Ephesians when he's talking about the armor of the Lord, the spiritual clothing that we can wear as Christians. I love the picture. He says, the hope of salvation. It's no longer a dread of destruction. It's a hope of salvation, which comes by God's grace through faith that is expressed and proved in love. That's what we're putting on is faith and love. And as Jesus says in John 14, the love for him is proved as we what? As we keep his commandments, as we follow him. So a heart that loves Jesus, follows Jesus and obeys Jesus. And that comes only by faith so that we wear now in Jesus upon our heads, hope of salvation, no longer fear of dread and dread of, of, of judgment. And here's the anchor, right here. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake, meaning we're alive when he returns, or whether we've fallen asleep, that we've already died, we might live with him, period. For the one not ready, the sudden return of Christ is indeed scary because it means judgment. But for the one ready, the sudden return of Christ is no longer scary because it means salvation. That's what Paul is getting at. So his challenge to the brothers and sisters here in Thessalonica and the Spirit's challenge through Paul's words to us is this. So be ready. Be, be ready. And so the question I've begun to ask, because I've thought about this passage, is, and, I, and I picture your faces wondering sometimes, I wonder if they're going to sit in the same seats. 
Or I wonder if they'll sit somewhere else. Picturing your faces as I'm reading through this text and thinking, what does the Spirit have for us in application? Are these questions kind of rise to the surface? We might be asking, because we need this encouragement, am I ready? Are we ready? How do I know? So let me ask you a few things. When you think about the day of the Lord, when you think about the return of Jesus, does that tend to stir fear in you? Or are you looking forward to it? And why is that? Have you sorted that? Is there something you're afraid of losing compared to all that you stand to gain? Because if you are trusting in your own ability, like the example I gave, our own strength, our own goodness, that you can stack up your good things, that you're not so bad compared to others, if that is your hope, then it should be scary. But if Christ Jesus is who he says he is, if we are in him like he promises that we are, that there's no more wrath for us because it was poured out on Jesus, while it will be sudden, it doesn't need to be scary because it means salvation for us. Or maybe you don't really consider the return of Jesus at all. It's not even on your radar. To which I'll ask, well, why is that? It's possible that we've fallen victim to the voices of those who call out There is peace and security, like those in Thessalonica. That we just, it'll be okay. God won't really judge the wicked. And if he does, we clearly won't be numbered among those people. But let's not be fooled into thinking that just because the master hasn't returned yet, that he is late or slow or has forgotten. We know too much now to pretend that God does not have a plan for his own glory to cover the earth as the waters over the sea. We we know too much. So this is a struggle for you. Can I just encourage you that perhaps this is an opportunity to let the Holy Spirit do some work on your heart to show you what it means to be truly and deeply have faith in Jesus. What it means to be saved from sin and death now and saved from the wrath to come. Now earlier I mentioned that you should hold on to that picture of the servant who is found working faithfully when his master returns. Here's where we're bringing that back. As we said earlier in this series, one of the lessons of Christ's return is that we keep living until he comes. We sing it regularly. Till he returns or calls me home. Thank you. There's a little more participation for a service, but thank you. Right? We sing. You're like, we're not singing now, Jake. That comes next. Right? We keep living till Jesus returns and the sky is split or we fall asleep for a moment and then are risen with him to new life until he returns or calls us home. We just keep living. In Matthew 24, as Jesus is trying to give his listeners a picture of this, right? Verse 30, in great power and glory, all the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man with a loud trumpet all gathered up. And right before all this happens... Life will be lived. We already referenced them. Two men working side by side in a field. Two women at the mill grinding the grain into flour. And in a moment, the sky will split. And in a moment, the trumpet will sound and one will be gathered and the other not. So we want to guard against the desire to just live out our remaining days in a bunker. Desperately trying to figure out the exact day of his return. Like we're trying to figure out the due date of the project. 
because we want our teacher, our master, when he comes to find us working diligently. So the question is, doing what? And that I can't answer for you. Outside of following, loving Jesus and making disciples. But the question for you is this. What assignment has he given you? Fulfilling our calling as moms and dads and teachers and nurses and neighbors and students. And in all those places that God has placed us, proclaiming the gospel in those places. Making disciples in those places. Helping bring the light of the truth of God's word to those dark places. So that more people would be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So that they too don't have to fear death. They don't have to dread Jesus' return. So it doesn't have to be scary for them, but can be for them a day of salvation. And they can look on it with hope because it means they too will live with him. Friends, I want to be really clear that there are things that give us pause. The reality of the holiness and righteousness and judgment and justice of God is something that we should be in awe of. It is truly awful. Full of awe. It should cause us to recognize the greatness of God, the smallness of man. So we don't want to diminish it or take it lightly. And it doesn't take away one ounce from the reality that in Christ Jesus, we are now secure. So for all of our hardships, the tribulation that we endure, the waiting that we do, we can be sure... That it is not God's wrath on us when we suffer because we were not destined for wrath. But that in Christ Jesus, we are destined to obtain salvation. So as we wait and as we walk, we walk as children of light. We're not buried in fear. We're not frustrated that he's taking just a little bit longer. We live with readiness. So that even though Jesus will come suddenly, we won't be startled. We won't be surprised. But we will be hopeful. For it means for us our salvation has come. We can be ready for that sudden day of the Lord by living now in light of Christ Jesus. Therefore, verse 11, because we are destined in Christ, not for wrath, but for salvation and glory, that we will be with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Should we pray? Father, we thank you that at the right time you sent Jesus Christ, God the Son, in the flesh, fully God and fully man, to live righteously, to die at the hands of sinners, to bear our sin, your wrath, and to take on our death that he might only raise to new life and in him secure eternal life for us. And that was at the right time. We trust that at the right time you will come again and bring to completion all that you've begun. Father, in places where our hearts are fearful, would you gently and powerfully by your Holy Spirit expose what needs to be exposed there, that if there's sin to be confessed or fear to be addressed, that you would speak to us clearly through your word and by your spirit, that we might not live in fear, but live in hope. If there are any here who are still trusting in themselves and that that day does seem scary or far off, 
Would you peel back blinders from eyes and scales around hearts and breathe life in places where there's death so that we need not fear but can live in hope? Encourage us now as we come to the table of the life secured for us through the death of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.